0: everyone hope you're having a great day or evening it's nearly the end of the year and that means it's nearly our second birthday
1: ah yes two years have flown by and by now you should know how to record an intro lily so why are you talking so fast
0: because this episode is all about rapid prototyping and that means moving super fast so i'm just getting some practice in
1: um okay you weirdo Philip Fantolidis from Cookpad joins us to talk about how rapid prototyping is an essential part of Cookpad's product design process. Let's go!
0: (laughs) The product experience is brought to you by Mind the Product.
1: Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love.
0: Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and
1: videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more.
0: Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you.
1: Hey, Lily. I don't know about you, but I feel relaxed, energized, you know, ready to go.
0: Why's that, Brandy?
1: Well, I just got back from a fantastic break. You know, we actually spent a couple of days together in Scotland at the touring festival, which I found really inspiring. And then I went off to a music festival where I actually ran into one of our former guests.
0: Ah, lovely. And we also recorded our talk to next week's guest while we were in Edinburgh. But as we took the last month off, maybe we should reintroduce ourselves.
1: That's a very good idea. Okay, hi. Welcome to the Product Experience Podcast. I'm Randy Silver, and I'm currently working as a product consultant and trainer.
0: And I'm Lily Smith, the product director at Symec. And each week, we talk to someone from the product community about something interesting that they've seen or done so that we can all get better at our practice. And did you realize that this is our 30th episode?
1: I did. Happy thirty! And our guest today is someone I'm really excited about. We've got Philip Pantelides from Cookpad joining us today to talk about rapid experimentation and how they've transformed the way their entire product UX and dev team work together. And while we've talked to a lot of the big names in our community, it's people like this—you know, people who have a great story but haven't really broadcasted beyond their local product tank. Those are the people I really, really love to chat with.
0: Definitely. And Philip organises Product Tank with me in Bristol and helped me get Product Camp in Bath off the ground earlier this year. But we're not everywhere. So please suggest guests to us from your community. We'd love to hear from you. The link's in our Twitter bio. We're at mtppod and also at mindtheproduct.com forward slash the hyphen product hyphen
1: experience. And we've got two treats for you today. We've got our chat with Philip, but also a new outro. Woohoo! Stick around to give it a listen. But for now, on with the chat. Philip,
0: welcome to the Product Experience podcast. It's really nice to have you.
2: Thank you for having me on.
0: And uh, we've spent a lot of time together, working together on Product Tank in Bristol. But quite often, we don't actually get a chance to just sit down and catch up or like talk to each other because we're just always organizing product tanks. So um, it would be great to actually find out more about what you've been up to at Cookpad anyway and have a chat about that on the on the podcast. But first of all before we get into what you're doing right now tell us a bit about how you got into product management.
2: Yes, yeah, so that's an interesting one. So I actually graduated university with a chemical engineering masters and basically if you're a chemical engineer you pretty much go into one of three industries so you either go into healthcare pharma or food manufacturing and so I graduated university and then sort of saw what was out there in the job market and realized that none of those companies that were in those three industries were actually going to change the world or actually solve the problems within those industries and then it was around the sort of time that companies started to come to the fore that were technology companies in those industries. So, for example, Tesla um, and Solar City came into the energy industry, Fitbit into healthcare, and I was never really interested in large-scale food manufacturer. So I basically decided to throw the towel in with chemical engineering and um, get myself into technology. So I then sort of worked in the startup incubator at the university that I graduated from and then that gave me a bit of time to work on my own product and sort of threw myself in the deep end by starting something up myself and yeah I guess that's how it started and I played with a lot of Lego as a kid so that probably helped as well.
1: What was it that you started? So I
2: started a company that was a social marketplace for small boutique businesses so the idea is essentially it was around the sort of time that shopify wasn't available on the market and small boutiques were struggling to get online and then there was this kind of growing makers movement um products like etsy coming out and it was essentially that sort of idea of creating a marketplace for small boutiques but largely places with physical stores as well so we were trying to bring sort of online offline uh, into what into one place
1: i've heard the worst possible word for that it was fidgetal fidgetal Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Physical and digital is a terrible word. Fidgetal.
0: Okay. Oh, I thought it meant like people just fidgeting around with things. <laughs> 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 did, did you kind of naturally gravitate towards the, the product role then within and, and kind of know about product management? How did you learn about product as a role?
2: Yeah. So I think, uh, again, probably a bit by accident. So my brother is a software engineer by trade. And so he kind of covered that side of things, and he was one of the co-founders. And then I basically—he—he's a bit of a night owl. So what used to happen is he—he'd—he'd he'd, he'd work all night and code the thing that we we'd basically been working on the day before, and then I'd wake up and I'd basically have an iteration of the product, and then I'd spend the morning sort of working out what to do next, and then he'd wake up at lunchtime and build the next version of it, and then it would kind of cycle around like that. So. Partially due to his sleeping patterns, but I think also, yeah, something that I probably gravitated to. I really enjoyed talking to the people using the product and the people we were trying to market to. So that's probably how it all fits in. Um, in terms of how I heard about it, just maybe reading, I guess, lots of books and that
0: sort of thing. So you got your first kind of foray into rapid prototyping, like in your first role as a as a product person then?
2: Yeah, straight in the deep
0: end or sort of rapid rapid iteration anyway.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um,
0: so tell us a bit about what you're doing now at Cookpad then. And, um, and you know, we're, we're going to talk to you about sort of your rapid prototyping process, but tell us about what Cookpad is about.
2: So Cookpad is, is a company that's been around for 20 years, and it's actually originated in Japan. And uh, the company was set out to basically solve problems in the world around food and cooking and eating. And in Japan, we're a household name, so sort of 80% of the female population in Japan use the product every month. And if you say Cookpad in Japan, you'll basically hear Yahoo, because Yahoo is still big in Japan, um, Google and Cookpad. And then a few years ago, the founder basically wanted to take that product concept and and take the mission global. And he really thinks that we're about 1% of the way there in terms of the impact that we need to be having on the world. And obviously, everybody in the world has to eat. And if we change the way that people think about food and eating, then then we can hopefully have an impact on the world. So he sent our CTO on a, um, on a, on a recce, basically, around the world to try and work out where to create the global headquarters. And they looked at the States, they looked at um, the UK, London, San Francisco etc and then actually ended up on um, focused in, in on Bristol in the UK and out of that office we look after the 59 countries around the world that aren't Japan so Japan uh, has its own product team but we look after this global product and what we're really trying to do is create the next version of Cookpad that's going to solve some of the food problems around cooking and eating in this global market
0: And I think I can definitely agree that Bristol is the place to set up the headquarters of a global tech company, for sure. (laughs) Yeah,
2: it's very, very foodie foodie as well, which really helps us.
1: Yeah, of course. So how did you come around to uh, instituting rapid prototyping and setting some really ambitious targets?
2: So in terms of What we're trying to do, we're trying to solve really complicated problems and and it's actually quite difficult to navigate that space. And the kind of the big ambitious target we've set ourselves is to make everyday cooking fun. And we're, we're really serious about this goal and what it actually means to the point where we've written into our incorporation documents that when everyone in the world loves to cook, cook pad won't be of use anymore. So we'll actually dissolve and because we're trying to solve these global problems that our competitors aren't trying to solve, we're really trying to have to navigate this unknown space. Um, and prototyping is actually the way to help navigate that space. It reduces a lot of risk. It allows you to be um, very visual in terms of trying to see what the product is as you're developing. And it helps us navigate this uncertainty quicker than this sort of typical build, measure, learn loop as we cut out a lot of the expense of the build part. And we're really trying to focus on creating the next version of the product as quickly as possible. And the world is moving in the opposite direction, actually. So a lot of people aren't cooking. There's a lot of, there's a lot of competitors in terms of whether it be packaged meals, whether it be companies like Deliveroo or Gojek or um, Uber Eats. And so speed's really important for us. And it's actually the way that we measure ourselves or budget our, our work is, is how, how quickly we can iterate and how quickly we can
1: make an impact. I think I understand what you're talking about. But just to make sure, how do you learn if you cut out the build? Or is it minimizing the build? Yeah,
2: so it's more about minimizing the build. So essentially, this this whole idea of, of lean development is sort of build, measure, learn. And what that meant when that book was written, it was very web focused as well, and it's very fast to iterate on the web, and you can kind of do multiple releases a day and get in, and see the impact straight away. But when you're building, especially an app product, it's quite an expensive um, process that so you have to you have to go through the app store, the Play Store. So there's quite a lot of overhead involved. So what we want to do is we want to make sure we test the riskiest assumptions first. And we're really trying to focus on big impactful bets that are gonna create a lot of product value. So if we can test those up front, it means that what we're actually building into the product we have a lot more confidence in.
0: And one of the things that I found really impressive, I guess, when you did this talk at Product Tank in Bristol was I kind of was like, Yeah, yeah, rapid prototyping, yeah, yeah, we all know that we should be learning faster. But you take this to like a whole nother level, don't you, in terms of how frequently you perform design sprints or or you uh, are running tests so tell us a bit about that frequency that you work at within the cookpad team
2: yeah so the way that we work we basically essentially that's just the way the product team works so we're really focused on this on this rapid prototyping concept and the reason is is that we're We're really in this stage where we're trying to create the sort of the next version of the product and this product for a global market. So we're exploring a lot. Um, we, we had Ken Beck in the office, who's the guy who wrote extreme programming at the end of last year. And he's got this really great model, which is this 3X model of explore, expand, extract. And this is the idea that you kind of go through those phases of a product and we're very much in that explore phase. And so the way that we work is we try and sort of iterate through this with the prototypes so we have this really small cross-functional teams that might be um, a product manager working closely with one or two designers and engineers and they're actually doing multiple iterations a day or and then releasing to beta users multiple times a week and the way it typically works is there's sort of a back and forth between product and design a prototype and that will start on post-it notes um, sort of like looking at a flow, we're looking at what, what is the problem we are trying to solve. Then we really quickly do the sort of a usability test, which is basically, does this thing make sense? So we'll probably run the prototype down to someone in, let's say, the finance team who basically has no idea what we're doing and they can tell really quickly whether this is something that actually makes sense to them. And the reason we go through that process really quickly is so that we can focus on, on a value test. So this is usually the idea. It's the same idea you, you can read about in the Design Sprint book, but it's the idea of getting five users into a prototype test and, and really trying to see if, if we're creating something of value. And then if it passes that test, then we sort of build that into a beta app or we build it into the main product to actually see how it works in the real world.
1: So I'm sorry, you, when you say you're going to beta users uh, a few times, multiple times a day, that's random people in the office, people on the street, people close by. That's not a full release. It's a, a test of a sketch or a concept.
2: Yeah, so that's kind of this, This the, the prototypes. And we use various different tools. So we use things like Marvel. We'll use things that are a bit more high fidelity. So we used a prototyping tool called Protopi. We like um, also Origami, which is Facebook's tool. And those are, those are basically in, they could be interactive or flat prototypes. Um, and that's as, as you said, so it's kind of more sort of guerrilla testing. Um, and it's more about just making sure that what we're building makes sense. And then when, when it comes to actually testing the value of the idea, we're still using those, those prototypes that kind of fake the product as much as possible. And we'll be testing with, with users either. Uh, new users who if depending on what the problem is we're trying to solve or we'll be testing with existing users of the product and it's the same sort of setup as in a design sprint so there'll be five users who come in we'll fake a scenario based on the prototype that we've been iterating throughout the week and then we'll we'll see whether that's actually worked or not and then we'll kind of go back again or back to the drawing board if it hasn't or kind of move forward and bring that into the product
1: and we'll put links to all the tools you mentioned in the show notes.
0: So the last time we talked about this, you were working on doing kind of lots of design sprints back to back. And that just sounded incredibly intense. Is that still what what you're doing? Is it like design sprints back to back? Or is it, um, is, is it slightly developed from then?
2: Yeah, so essentially what we've done is we've sort of taken the bits out of a design sprint that really work and help us kind of go through this build test repeat cycle with rapid prototype testing. And so we're not actually doing a full-on design sprint every week with eight people in the room with like, your laptop turned off and that, and that sort of thing. What we're doing is we're, we're going of taking the core concept of basically listening to what we heard from the previous test, sketching out ideas, working between product and design, creating a prototype and then testing it as in the in that sort of same format but we we still do sort of a full design sprint usually in one of three cases either when we've got a really big problem or opportunity that we want to solve and we don't have a direction or sometimes when we kind of want to reaccelerate on a particular area that we're focusing on uh, it's also a really great way of getting the whole team aligned so I'm actually going out to Jakarta next week to do a design sprint on, on an objective that we're trying to meet by the end of the year and and that's really just to refocus the team and sort of speed up our progress towards that goal. So, yeah, they're not full on design sprints 8 weeks back to back, but it's kind of the best bits that we've we've found work for us.
0: Are you struggling to find the answers to your product questions, keen to learn from others in the community and want to know where to go next in your career, Mind the Product can
1: help. Mind the Product membership will help you to level up your career, build better products and lead successful product teams. And as the world's largest professional network for product people with decades of product management experience, you won't find this anywhere else.
0: As a member, you'll get exclusive access to premium editorial, product experts, and product peers tackling similar challenges, plus brand new self-paced online training modules that cover core product skills like goals alignment, prioritization, hypotheses and testing, and more.
1: For more info and to become a member today, visit mindtheproduct.com slash join. Do you mind sharing which are the bits that you found really essential to use if you're going to do it again and again and again?
2: Yeah, so the, the the main thing is that whole start at the end with the test. So the, the thing that's really important is we actually put in that test with five users as a forcing mechanism, and it forces us to have a deadline to work towards. So we actually have people coming into the office every week that we we can use for that, and we... Have the same. We've got a team set up in Indonesia at the moment. Who usually every Friday um, have have people coming into the office. So that's that's one thing. The second part that's uh, really helpful is the idea of kind of taking on board all the information at the beginning of at the beginning of that process. So whether it be experts or users or listening to user interviews or taking on all of that research. So they do this kind of expert interview. Thing within a design sprint, which is really helpful and it helps you download and empathize with the user. And then lightning demos are also a really great way. Um, and those sort of happen ad hoc nowadays within the product and design teams, where if we're trying to do something, someone will go, Oh, have you seen that thing on this other product? What is this this is what Slack are doing? Um, or have you seen this camera app recently, or have you seen this app that allows you to edit? Instagram stories or various different things. So we kind of have that sort of baked into the way we work. But definitely the idea of testing with five five people is, is a really, really strong way of validating something quite quickly.
1: And I know there's some controversy around is five actually enough? What have you seen about that?
2: Yeah, so someone asked me about this recently. And The way that we, the way that we run it is actually we're quite strict on ourselves. So we set ourselves a really clear sort of, I guess, sprint question. And it's always a question that you can answer with a yes or a no. And what that means is that basically by the end of those five tests, we'll basically know whether we felt that that user would, uh, would have responded to that question as a yes or a no. And pretty much, unless minimum three, Usually four people out of five are kind of like a strong yes. We, we, It's kind of a fail for us and we'll have to go back round again. So it's more about giving us confidence. It's obviously not statistically significant, but it's really about navigating this unknown space as easily as possible. So, yeah, I think five is enough. And you tend to see patterns as well, actually.
0: Yeah. And does moving at this rapid pace have drawbacks? Yeah, so I think the
2: thing, the main thing actually is keeping the whole team on the on the same page. So we've got a growing team in, in the global HQ. So we're kind of over 100 people now. When I started, I think there were just over 10. And it's quite difficult to keep abreast of what's going on. So what we've done to sort of combat this is, is we actually have company-wide product demos in our kitchen over food and drinks every second Friday. So we have this amazing kitchen, which is sort of the hub of the office. And everyone gets to share what they're working on. So the engineers get to share the thing that they've been working on that week or that sprint. Machine learning guys get to share what they're working on, product and design. And the only rule is basically no keynotes. So basically everything's got to be a demo. So as you can probably tell, everything is focused around prototypes and demos. And what that means is that everyone is able to get to see what's going on. And the other thing, and I think we touched on this a little bit, is the prototype only really takes you so far. It's kind of more about discovering value, but to actually create the value, you've actually got to build it into the product. So what we started to do is focus on sort of beta groups and um, test these early ideas really quickly. So. The drawback of this is that it basically means that everything that you build into that beta app is probably going to get bins, so it it has to be built again for production. But it does mean that you can take a lot more risks and you can iterate a lot quicker and get a lot more close user feedback. So, yeah, you kind of have to balance it with that side of things as well. You can't just rely solely on the prototype.
1: How do you know when you're done then? You're prototyping, you're doing all this really quickly. How do you know when you're done, and you've got something that's ready to go into a production cycle?
2: Yeah, so I think it's all about reducing risk and sort of gaining confidence. But one thing that we're, um, one concept that we're, we're kind of working on at the moment is people who have a, a, the unmet need that we're trying to solve, and we, we use them in our beta groups. And we kind of saying, again, we kind of use this rule of thumb of five or six people and they basically have to be absolutely in love with the thing that we've put into the beta app and if they don't absolutely love it then there's no chance of that scaling to to hundreds and thousands of people so we it's more about us building confidence and the other thing that we we do is that we'll we'll have a load of um tracking within those beta groups and we're really looking for this this sort of heartbeat of people coming back and using that part of the product. So we we'll are pretty much just tell them about it the first time. So we'll go, there's this new feature, go and use it. And it's really making sure that they actually come back to it and use it and find value in it time and time again without being prompted to. So it's the same thing as asking a friend or your mum to use a product, but like the week later, they've like unsubscribed. It's that sort of idea of making sure that those people actually come back to it and are finding real value. So we we'll kind of have our head stuck into Mixpanel and sort of be looking for those heartbeat of those people coming back and using it time and time again.
0: And do you ever feel that you just know that something needs to change in a particular way or you need to release a particular feature or, or development and sort of skip the prototyping process? Or, I mean, I'm guessing the answer is going to be no. Uh,
2: yes, and I'm usually very wrong. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's happened a few times. So actually, my my favorite quote has become, it's a quote from the physicist Richard Feynman. And I've kind of got this stuck on the wall now to avoid this trap. And it's, the first principle is not to fool yourself because you're the easiest person to fool. (laughs) Probably the best product management quote ever. And um, so basically, we try and test anything that's likely to become impactful. And I think it's your responsibility as a, as a as a product person to to actually navigate that uncertainty. So yeah, there's another quote that I quite like, which is "build like you're right and test like you're wrong," which sort of allows you to flip flop between basically you think you're right, but then just disprove it essentially, or prove it with a test.
0: Yeah, and and how does this impact everything kind of further downstream in development? Because you know, if you're used to, I guess, if you're covering a lot off a lot of kind of ambiguity before you even get to the build stage, then does that mean that you have less change in the in the UI when, when the developers are actually building stuff within the app?
2: Yeah, so that's that's the general idea. So uh, to give an example, we re- we launched an, an app redesign pretty recently around sort of a core experience that actually came out the back of a design sprint. And we pretty much built more or less the whole app and all the main flows and interactive prototypes even before building it. And that meant that all the flows were really clear and, and the UX was as clear as it possibly could be. And the idea is basically to just to make sure that key product value is being communicated to the user. Um, I definitely think I'd be lying if we said we got it right the first time, every time. And I think some of the engineers would probably kill me if I said that we did every time. But we've also got a really great delivery team who are getting quite strict on us in terms of making sure that we don't deliver fluffy specs or designs to engineers. So there's kind of this gateway of, of this doesn't make sense, we're not building it, which is quite quite healthy actually.
1: How do they define fluffy?
2: How do they define fluffy? So, <laughs> um, so they they both
0: in come, a fluffy way,
2: in a fluffy way. Well, basically, they're both uh, the kind of the delivery team. There's the, um, a couple of them are engineers as well. So if they if they don't understand it or if they can tear it apart, then then it's pretty much a no go from the start. So all the edge cases that you never think about. Uh, All the things that you fake in the prototype test, but then you actually have to spec out and design for real. Mm.
1: So you talked about uh, the fact that you're going out to Jakarta, and I think your biggest market outside Japan actually is Indonesia. Um, And I think you've got a big team over in Indonesia as well, I believe. What's it like working on that global basis? Do you have problems from working with the teams across the globe or dealing with the fact that cultural assumptions and time and language barriers?
2: Yeah, so it's, it's a big challenge. So we're obviously we're in 59 countries around the world. Indonesia, as you said, is our biggest market. Indonesia is actually a really fascinating place. And I didn't really realize until I started working there. It's the fourth largest population in the world. The economy is growing like wildfire. There are multiple unicorn startups coming out of that area. Um, but the way that we sort of get really close to, to the user and try and understand the local context is we have an incredible team of community managers, um, within various parts of the world. And what they're doing is they're working on offline events. They're working, um, really closely with our users and, 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 really building a community around how they use the product. And what we have in some key regions, so in Indonesia, for example, is we have a team there, sort of one or two people who really focused on actually doing these tests for us. So we've got to the point now where most of those prototype tests actually happen in Indonesia. And then that sort of, it will be filmed and translated and synthesized back to us and then we can iterate on that and it it's really just about having a really close relationship with with the team there and so that's kind of one of the reasons why going out there is a really great idea to kind of really understand the context i don't think we could we could do it without actually going out there and going to the market but having that team on the ground who really really understand the user and and the problems we're trying to solve is is incredibly helpful
0: and do you split your product teams geographically So you kind of tend to focus on Indonesia, or is it split in other ways?
2: No. So what we, um, so at the moment, I have a bit of a focus on Indonesia. So what I'm, the part of the product that I'm looking after is our premium part of our product, and because it is such a big market, it's it for us. It's it's the one that we're really focusing on monetizing. And but apart from that, we're trying to build a global product. So any great product at scale. Nowadays is actually for a global market. Whether it takes something like WhatsApp or Instagram or, or Netflix, they're all built for a global market. So, and we're trying to solve big problems around food and eating. So we have to solve those fundamental problems. And there were two options really: either have a distributed team and get really close to the users, or have um, a really tight knit, close, fast-working product team all in one place and. Both have their positives and negatives. But I think with this setup of everyone in the product team working really closely and having sort of support teams in various places is probably actually the best way we can work.
1: So product and dev is uh, completely co-located in Bristol. And then you work with the community managers and other people to test rapidly in, in other geographies.
2: Yeah. So that's how it works. So the, the, the HQ for
0: global is Bristol. Makes sense. So at, at Product Camp, I think it was in London, I went to a session on Discovery and pretty much everyone in the room said that their main issue or, or problem or challenge with Discovery was finding good reference customers. So how do you go about it at Cookpad? And obviously you've got the community managers to kind of work with them, but do you have any sort of tips for finding good reference customers and sort of what makes a a bad one and what makes a a good one?
2: Yeah, so I think the best way to, to find reference customers is to basically screen for people who have the unmet need that you're trying to solve for with the product. So to give an example, if we're aiming to improve our search experience we're looking for people who are trying to, who are actually using the product to find recipes multiple times a day every day of the week and they might be doing that but there's definitely room for improvement and if we're trying to improve the product those are the people who really know how we can help them because they really want to solve that problem for them so we really try and focus on those people and the number one rule, and I guess what makes a bad reference customer is someone that you pay. So the number one rule is don't pay them. That's that's pretty much cheating. A, a better reference customer is someone who pays you. And so if they're actually paying for your product, they're, they're the best reference customer. Um, if they if they're the sort of people who send you in emails every time you send out an app release and, and they're either ecstatic about an experience or really don't like it. Those are the people you want to talk to. But this this core concept of solving for unmet needs, is it's, it's kind of closely tied to this idea of jobs to be done. And we're kind of quite into this book called Competing Against Luck at the moment, which is a Clayton Christensen book. So he's the chap who wrote Innovator's Dilemma. And we're really trying to focus on those people who have the problem that we're trying to solve and we're trying to use the product to solve that problem.
0: And you've worked a lot with Marty Kagan on this stuff so how has he shaped your thinking on all of this?
2: Yeah so we were were really lucky to have Marty come to the office at the end of last year and, and give a workshop and his his inspired book and also some of the blog posts really give a solid framework on how to approach things. So this idea of reference customers, actually the challenge that we've set ourselves of doing multiple iterations a week, um, dual track agile, those all kind of come from that. But everything that Marty does is kind of like a fre- framework or a textbook. So to actually get it to work in terms of the way that we work in at Cookpad, there's been a lot of trial and error. And actually the talk that I've been giving recently at product events and a few product tanks is is kind of a set of principles that we've developed retrospectively based on what's worked for us along the way. And we're really trying to learn from what we're doing and changing it up all the time. So we question uh, basically the processes of the way that we do things pretty much on a daily basis and uh, iterating that as much as we are actually iterating the product. So yeah, it's a challenge. Um, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to that. It's essentially just, again, iterating through it and trying to work out what works for you.
0: Cool. Philip, it's been really, really nice talking to you about rapid prototyping. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
2: No, it was great. I love I love a podcast, so it's it's great to be on one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And now the moment you've all been waiting for, it's time for our new credits. The product
0: experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Our hosts are me, that's Lily Smith, and Randy Silver.
1: Emily Tate is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Emily is ours alone, but we're happy to share Luke if you need someone to edit your own podcast.
0: Hey, you can't share him too much. He's my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band PAU, that's P-A-U, thanks to Arne Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg and plays bass in the band for letting us use the music.
1: And sign up for your local Product Tank, a regular meetup in over 185 cities worldwide. There's probably one someone near you. And if there's not, you can start one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. Here's global coordinator Mark Abraham to tell you more about it. Product tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world,
2: driven by and for product managers. Whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, the whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips.